The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. Welcome everybody for coming tonight. Nice to see everybody here. We're really grateful to have Rebecca Bradshaw back. I now we call you a regular visiting teacher at Common Ground. Seems that way, yeah. yeah. Fortunately, she has family in town, which she usually visits in the summer. And she's also been a regular teacher for the Twin Cities Vipassana Collective. And she'll be teaching the, I think, maybe seven-day retreat at the very end of January. You can keep that in mind. Five-day retreat? At the end of January this year, we always have the PCBC flyers for the retreats out in the uh, entranceway on the shelf. So you can always find what's coming up. And Rebecca is uh, the guiding teacher at a center in Western Massachusetts, uh, Insight, in Insight Center in Pioneer Valley. Insight Meditation Center of Pioneer Valley, yeah. yeah. And she also teaches at IMS, a kind of grandmother Vipassana institution in the country, in the center of Massachusetts, and is currently one of the three-month uh, teachers uh, with Ocean this fall. I think you're teaching the second half of the three-month retreat. Yeah. And tonight's talk, The Greatest Disappointment Leading to Peace. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. I told my sister um, the title before I came. She said, well, that's kind of heavy, isn't it? <laughs> the peace part. Get the peace part. <laughs> um, or or some... Or, or, um, um, title might be the heart needs protection so it's kind of about two different subjects that come together and yeah it is nice to be here again and I do feel a little bit like a regular I think this is the third year in a row um, when I come to visit my family I've come to give a talk here and as always I really enjoy it so thanks for having me back so when Trungpa Rinpoche um, a Tibetan master was asked what is the uh, essence of practice his answer would be it's the practice of complete openness and I um, ponder that sentence often it's, um, it feels to me like what practice is about the practice of complete openness or learning how to live in a way that our hearts and minds are um, you could say unfettered unburdened and um, where there isn't a sense of separation from life itself life as it is and also he was uh, Rinpoche was also known to say turn towards everything which to me goes with this um, practice being about complete openness turn towards everything and so we might hear this and in one way it sounds great it sounds like fresh and um, there's that sense of spaciousness right the openness um, but then there's another part of us that um, may if we're honest um, go whoa I'm not sure about that um, it may even sound uh, frightening or terrifying complete openness um, you know that complete connection with all of life and in practice what we do is we develop a heart and mind that can be with a whole range of life's experiences um, and the deepest truths of life, which are the truths of change and of dukkha, or unsatisfactoriness, unreliability. It's 
It's a lifelong journey. Most of you already know that. Um, because it's not a very easy task. Uh, the human conundrum is that we live in a world um, our, we live in a world that's not an easy world. I mean, there may be a few of you here who might disagree with me, but I think most of you could agree that we live in a very... Um, we've taken realm in a universe or a, um, a world that is challenging. And then when we're talking about complete openness in that world, that is a challenging task. Does anybody disagree with me? Or? <laughs> And the biggest problem with this universe, so to speak, is that um, it, everything's always changing. You can't peg it down. You can't get life to be exactly like you want it to be. And of course, um, we have influence. We can um, shape our lives, and we should shape our lives. I'm not saying that. Um, but we've taken birth in this universe of change. And um, it's tough to navigate, and it's a wild ride. It's a, a human life is a wild ride. And um, because we've taken birth in this kind of realm where there's all the change, constant change, we um, feel a bit vulnerable. That's the human predicament. What do we do about that? I mean, the truth of living in this life, our world of constant change, means that we really don't know what's going to happen next. Uh, you know, really, we don't have, um, at any moment in our lives, there can be sudden change, right? There is, a, there is this always changing, but also a sudden change. We may get the diagnosis of an illness, or somebody may die, or, you know, the plane I was on today, there was a lot of turbulence because of the thunderstorms. And then you always have a little thought in your mind, well, what if this is really it, you know? Um, we just, we don't know. Or we might get, on the other side, we might, there may be a birth or a new job or, um, but there's um, this constant change. Mostly we don't like to hear about it too much makes us a little nervous living in this kind of um, universe. We're not really sure what to do with the insecurity of that, which is why open-heartedness is so hard. To have true open-heartedness, we have to be willing to connect, are able to connect with life as it is, and that means life changing. So how do we do that? How do we connect with this kind of life that we have taken birth in? The heart needs some protection. And I see practice as a, a, as a transition in what protects our hearts, how we protect ourselves, our hearts in this world of change. So our, um, our deeply conditioned strategies for how we live in this world of change are what the, Buddhists call, uh, the Buddha called the three roots of suffering. Grasping, trying to hold on to what we want, what's pleasant. Trying to get rid of 
aversion, trying to get rid of what we don't want, what's unpleasant. Or delusion or ignorance is the third one. So there's grasping, aversion, and delusion or ignorance. It's, it's, it's hard to, th- those translations have such um, colloquial meanings that I have to explain a little bit what I mean by that in Buddhism. Basically, delusion and ignorance means a not understanding or not connecting <coughs> with the truth of how life is. And a lot of times, um, I, I'm really fascinated by this in the last years of my practice, delusion sometimes means that we just live at a slight remove from life. There's, a, there's just a slight, or even maybe not so slight, um, disconnection from what's happening. Or ignorance, in in Buddhist terminology, could be, um, I call it a willful, it's actually a willful act, it's very interesting, it's a willful act of not seeing that we live in a world of change. It's, um, I'll give you an example. A number of years ago I went um, on a trip with my goddaughter, I took her to Paris for her graduation from high school, she'd never been out of the country, and um, came back and she showed me some pictures after you know a little while of the trip and I, I saw this picture with this woman she had white hair and I looked at it and I was like huh my first thought was who's that <laughs> it was me right <laughs> and it was like I, I couldn't understand where the white hair came from you know it was that there's there's that's kind of an element of delusion or ignorance there and this kind of um, not um, seeing you know, the truth of what's true now. Or I notice this too. Like, um, I notice when I look at myself in a mirror, I see myself as I looked 10 years ago. I really don't think I see myself as I look now. It's try as hard as I can, you know. It's like, and then you, we all have this happen. You're walking along and you get a glimpse of yourself maybe in a store or mirror or something. You, you know, like, do I look like that, right? So, um... I think of these as a kind of descriptions of delusion or ignorance in, in Buddhist um, understanding. And what's so interesting about delusion is you don't know it's happening. It's so slippery because one of the aspects of delusion is you don't know, you know. And so it's like, it's, it's incredible. <laughs> um, so these three strategies of grasping, aversion, and um, delusion are actually how we try to protect our hearts in this world of change. And they're all actually strategies of some kind of control. Basically, we have this deep hope that if we can somehow control life enough, we'll figure out how to get through this, this, this world. Uh, you know, we'll figure out how to be reasonably happy that if we can... Um, make it pleasant enough and avoid enough unpleasantness and kind of uh, not look at what we don't want to see that um, somehow we'll get through, right? It takes a lot of energy to live that way. It's so interesting, too, and this is related to ignorance or delusion, we, we all have some yearning for truth. I don't think you would be here tonight if you didn't have some um, yearning to want to really understand. 
Maybe some of you just want to chill, but um, <laughs> or maybe the air conditioning is nice on the hot night, or, or you're like the biggest disappointment. What's she going to talk about? Um, but mostly, I think it, the, the the purpose of Vipassana meditation is to understand how things are, so that we can live with some peace. So I think we have some wish for the truth, but it's so interesting because next to that, we also have this desire not to know. And that is also um, what the Buddhists would call delusion. It's so interesting. You know, I see it in myself, that fight. You know, sometimes you really want to know, and then you're like, well, I'm not really sure if I want to know. Um, I was reading this book recently about climate change, and um, it was fascinating. While I read it, you know, I'd be like, the science is pretty good, <laughs> or at least many people think the science is pretty good, that um, we're not headed towards easy times as a planet, right? That it's going to be difficult now. I know not everybody believes that, but um, I've read a number of books and science seems to be pretty good. Um, and so I'd be reading this book and I'd, I'd like, I could only read a few pages and I'd be like, oh, no, I can't. You know, I just, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. And I think it's the same. I hope I'm not finding you guys out or anything. <laughs> But I think it's the same with, like, how life is. You know, in some ways we really want to know, in other ways it's like, whoa, this is a wild world. Oh, my. You know, so we have these, um, we have delusion and ignorance to protect us. And it works to a certain extent, you know. It does. And so does grasping and aversion. They work to a certain extent, too, as far as making a life a little more pleasant or a little less unpleasant. Now, these strategies, I think, we keep them up because they actually do work some, somewhat in some ways. And the, these strategies, these three roots of suffering, as the Buddhist taught, the strategies of grasping, aversion, and, and not knowing, or not wanting to know, or not seeing, um, they do seem to work on one hand, but they also impede true connection or open-heartedness. That's, that's the downside. They give us some sense of the illusion of security, but they um, close down the heart. So, the greatest disappointment <laughs> is that we... Um, that we can't control this world and that these strategies of control won't work. Now, this kind of bums me out sometimes. I mean, I kind of hoped that maybe that was going to work. You know, that's how, as humans, you know, I kind of hope, like, yeah, maybe I can just, like, micromanage this world enough that somehow I'll be happy that way. But it doesn't work. It doesn't lead to peace. That's why I call it the greatest disappointment um, that leads to peace, is we have to really understand that these strategies don't work. Because then we can start heading our hearts and minds in a direction that does work, that does lead to a deeper kind of happiness. A number of years ago, I was teaching in... Um, I teach in Burma sometimes, usually about every other year, at this retreat in Upper Burma that my teacher um, teaches at also. 
in a monastery there. And um, I remember one time this woman, she raised her hand to ask a question. She said, where can we rest? That was her question, where can we rest? And I think this, this gets to the crux of the matter with grasping aversion and delusion, there isn't any rest. It's restless. It's a restless solution to um, how we're going to be happy. And that's why it doesn't lead to peace, because there isn't any rest. If we're taking our um, strategy to be to try to always fix things to be a certain way and things keep changing, then we're always going to be restless. I want to... Um, but that is kind of the human way. It is uh, the conditioning that we've brought in. On these long flights to um, Burma, I've got to find something to entertain myself. It takes one of the flights is 15 hours, so it's a long time. So sometimes I like to look through the airplane magazines to see. Um, I actually do it because I like to see what the mainstream is up to. <laughs> And then I also look sometimes for anti-garma because you find some really interesting things. So this was last year. This was, this was the best one of last year. And it's related a little bit, but also I just think it's um, quite incredible. So it's a picture. There's two lovely women. Your prettiest you, it says. Renowned makeup artist Bobby Brown believes women should, quote, look and feel like themselves only prettier and more confident. <laughs> so, um, whenever I need that to a Dharma house, everybody always laughs, right? But what's shocking is that this wasn't meant to be funny. You know, I mean, that's, that's what is so incredible about it. But it really... Um, it points a little bit to this kind of attitude that we also have very much of a culture of like, you know, everything can be better and improved and fixed and it's that restlessness of always um, somehow taking our refuge in that kind of um, strategy. We should look and feel like ourselves because um, that's the individualism, right? <laughs> Only prettier and more confident, that's the capitalism on top of it or the... Um, the kind of um, that strategy. Oh. The other, um, another great quote I found recently, which I think was earlier in my talk, and I forgot to tell you about. <laughs> I think that was it. Yeah, I think I missed it, but I have to read it because it's so great. Um, from Jane Wagner. Apparently, she writes for Lily Tomlin. Reality is a leading cause of stress among those in touch with it. <laughs> this is delusion, right? This is back to delusion. Reality is the leading cause of stress amongst those in touch with it. I can take it in small doses, but as a lifestyle, I found it too confining. <laughs> That's delusion. Mm. And our ambivalence, right, about reality and whether we really want to be in touch with it. Sometimes when I think um, this world is too uncertain, when I'm really in touch with that truth of uncertainty, of change, 
Sometimes I'll kind of rage against it. I'll be like, who set this up? Why? You know, what a messed up plan, you know. But, but really, um, who could do better? And uh, things are as they are. There was a sign I saw in the office. This is how it is now. I saw it around a lot here in the office. This is how it is now, right? Things are as they are. The universe is as it is. And we really, if we want peace, we have no choice but to um, somehow learn to live with that with grace, kindness, and ease. It's the world we got. And then we find as we begin to relax um, our control our control strategies somewhat, as we start to really look at them and look through them through practice of looking at the grasping, the aversion, the delusion, um, the not understanding the way things are, as we really start to investigate those and, and begin to um, consider that they might not be the only or best alternatives in how to meet this world and start to relax around these strategies, we start to find a place of greater and greater rest and peace. And we start to actually connect with this world as it is. If grasping is a a present, our aversion is present, our delusion is present, we can't actually connect with the world as it is. All of those are in the way. That those are um, The protection is in the way. And then we find when we can relax controlling that um, it's actually an amazing universe that we live in. It's always fresh. It's new. It's awesome, mysterious, vast. So through practice, we learn to acclimate to living in that flow of change. And we strengthen the heart to be able to face the world as it is. So a practice is a slow letting go of and dissolving of these um, these protections of grasping aversion and delusion and replacing them with sane protections and ones that allow open-heartedness. So the next part of my talk is going to be about um, these protections that the practice can offer us for the heart. And I'm going to focus on um, just a couple of them. I think sometimes of um, all the epic journeys, um, the myths of epic journeys, there's a hero or the heroine, and they go through many challenges and difficulties and surprises, and they're often given as they go on these journeys something to protect them, some talisman or word or phrase or something, right, a cloak or something to protect them. And um, practice offers us also protections for this journey, this um, amazing journey through this universe of change. The two basic protections of the practice are wisdom and love. So wisdom is seeing things as they are and living in harmony with 
things as they are. In other words, living in harmony with change. And it's a protection because it's the truth. When we when we when we know um, what we're dealing with, there's not the anxiety of um, of wondering what's going to come at you. When we know things as they are, we're in touch with reality, and there's a protection there. A key part of the wisdom um, protection of the Buddha is the quality of equanimity, which the Buddha considered the highest wisdom and the highest happiness that we can experience as humans. And um, equanimity is the is really how much reality uh, the heart can hold with balance or with grace or poise, humor, flexibility, ease. So equanimity is basically um, the quality of the heart at ease with change. We really only break through or um, see through ignorance and delusion in the Buddhist meanings of the term. We really only break through at the rate that we can deal with reality. So sometimes I feel like meditation practice is practice in dealing with reality. So you come down, you come and you sit, right? And all kinds of things happen. I'm assuming all kinds of things happen when you sit. And then we get a chance to learn how to deal with, with reality as it manifests moment by moment in this heart, mind, and body. So in many ways, um, that itself is a practice of openness. So when I gave instructions um, earlier today, or earlier in the sitting, about just notice that there's resistance to what's happening, that's what we get really interested in. That's how we develop equanimity is by that um, being able to notice and connect with our resistance to reality or to the way things are. Like, for example, um, the, it's so interesting to watch in our sittings because the, the desire to control is very deep. So even just to go five minutes without controlling your breath, that would be a major achievement. <laughs> it's, it's, um, it get, what happens is we meditate more and more as we just get more and more aware of the subtle ways of how we try to control. And so even tonight, it was interesting, so I'm sitting, right, and I had kind of had a little bit of a wild day, you know, a long plane ride and hanging out with my two, three-year-old nieces. <laughs> singing ABC and just doing a bunch of things. And I, my, my partner and I, we, we live alone and tend to have a quiet life, so right? So my energy's a little high, and so I'm sitting during the sitting, right? I'm like, okay, trying to relax. And then at a certain point, I'm like, oh, I'm resisting the way things are, you know? Because I was trying, there's nothing wrong with trying to relax. But there was a level of the, the way I was doing it, there was a, there was a control going on. There was a there was a kind of an edge to it, right? So then I was like, Oh, how are things, right? Oh, lots of movement, lots of energy. Um, not quite as grounded as I'd like to be. Okay, this is the way it is. And it's like it takes us so long to remember that, doesn't it? Often. And so then, as soon as I remembered that, though, then it was like, Oh, there was ease with the way things were. 
which wasn't exactly how I wanted them to be, right? But it, it was the way it was. And then, and then what happens, and I see this happen over and over again, so then there's this ease with the way things are, and then the heart opens. And then there's compassion. There's care. There's connection. And it's like we have to keep going through that process, you know, on the cushion in our lives over and over again. Where's the control? Where's the edge? Where's the, um, the unwillingness to be with things as they are? And then we relax into the way they are, and then the heart opens, and then we care, and then there's connection. And it doesn't have to be exactly linear like that, but that's how I see it. Well, that's how it happens. So this is equanimity, being able to be with things as they are. Where's our edge? Where can we not do that? And that's not bad. That's what we turn on. We, we're, we're with that. So when I was sitting, I saw the resistance. I was with that. And then, ah, it's okay. Ajahn Chah says, this is his meditation instructions. Ajahn Chah was a famous Thai master. He says, put a chair in the middle of a room, sit in the chair, see who comes to visit. And I love that as a description of meditation. See who comes to visit. And our equanimity practice is, can we meet, can we connect with, can we be open-hearted with whoever comes to visit. And if what comes to visit is resistance to what came to visit, can we be open-hearted with that? Can we meet that? There's no, there's no control. It's all about can we um, accept. Now, it doesn't mean there aren't skillful things to do in your practice sometimes that, that are, you know, that are helpful and that are more directive than that. But ultimately, that's, that's the challenge. Can we... Um, be the things as they are. And there is, um, and as we can do this more and more, there's a deep joy that comes through that connection. It's, um, it's very grounded and uh, very joyful. We learn to do that more. Very beautiful. And um, you can see that equanimity, this quality of being at ease with change and things as they are, is very useful in this world of change. It's, it's, my teacher used to say to me, it's our only hope. Very important quality. And it, equanimity makes our hearts strong. It's a protection because there's less and less that needs to be kept out or avoided or manipulated or controlled or ignored. Um, There's less and less that we're running from. Equanimity is that turning towards everything that Trung Parimpache mentioned, and um, it makes our hearts strong when we can do that. It's a great protection because it's an open-hearted protection. Somebody named Romain Roland, I don't know who he is, he said, there's only one heroism in this world, to see the world as it is and to love it. 
So to see this world as it is, wisdom, and to love it, which is the other protection I want to talk about a little bit tonight. So love, what we can call metta, we often call metta or um, compassion. And it's also the practice of openness. And it's the softness that melts the hard edges of, of control of all these other strategies. And the, the power of metta or love is the unconditional quality of it. That it, again, accepts um, whatever comes to visit. And its protection is this inclusivity. It's like, how large can our hearts get? Turn towards everything with kindness, whether it's anger or joy or the knee pain, the open heart, the closed heart. Love includes it all. There's um, uh, one of my favorite authors is Lynn Jensen. He writes some great stuff. And um, from the Shambhala Sun here, we have a, um, this is from his book, Deep Down Things. A few, years, a few years after I undertook Buddhist practice, I took the four bodhisattva vows, the first of which is, though beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. All beings, I asked? People, birds, trees, stones? All beings, I was told. How, I asked, do I save all beings? The answer, by letting them in. Though I didn't quite grasp the implications of it at the time, in taking the vow to save all beings, I committed myself not only to save my family, friends, and the checkout clerk at the grocery store, but my supposed enemies as well, all those people I feared and disliked in the world. I'd undertaken a practice of total inclusion. So I think of love as a practice of total um, inclusion. And that's its protection, that we let all in. And so through this process of love, we end the war of separation within ourselves and without. There's room for us to be with all that is, whether it's our insane minds or the turbulence of desire, wanting, annoyance, peace, all of it. And through this process of love, we become holy and authentically ourselves. And out of that acceptance, transformation happens. So we change out of love. In Burma, um, a metta is one of the guardian meditations. There's four guardian meditations, so it's it's considered by guardian protection. It's a protection meditation. It makes the heart strong and gentle. When I first started practice, I thought that I had to do everything <coughs> through will or read control. <laughs> um, I had a very strong determination and strong to develop will. And my sense was that somehow we were going to do this practice or I was going to do this practice through my will. And um, 
at a certain point, the will wasn't really solving things. <laughs> it wasn't working too well. After about eight years of my practice, I went to my <laughs> I went to my teacher and I said, "Look, um, wow, I'm suffering a lot. I can see that, and you know, it's just mm, not too much transformation going on here." And uh, <laughs> and at that point, I didn't like meta meditation. I wouldn't do it. Um, <laughs> I had an aversion to meta meditation. <laughs> really, it was strong. If there was a meta sitting in the hall, I didn't go. And um, and so my t- so he said to me, um, he said, uh, do a meta retreat. <laughs> like no. <laughs> it was like oh, it was like the worst thing to hear. Um, but I trusted him and I did it. Uh, for two months, I did a meta retreat and. Um, it completely changed my practice because the, the practice of metta made my heart strong and gentle at the same time. And what a surprise to learn that you know, the transformation doesn't come out of will, it comes out of love. That's what I learned. And then every once in a while, I mean, I go back and just do more metta meditation. It's just like, it just, it keeps um, strengthening the heart so that it can be open in this world, this wild, wild, awesome world um, that we live in. So metta is gentleness. It's, um, it melts the barrier between us and what we see out there. And we begin to meet um, not only our internal experiences, but the external ones more and more of them with gentleness. The chair with gentleness, the squirrel with gentleness. In Burma this year, I love to tell Burma stories. Um, uh, so we had a, this, um, I, I wasn't there for the year before, but apparently they had um, the government had decided to assign a policeman for our um, retreat. I think there had been a robbery at one time, and they wanted um, supposedly to give us some um, protection, right? And uh, I was prepared not to like this policeman. Let's just say that. <laughs> let's just put it that way. Um, you know, questionable um, whether he was there for our protection or not. Um, you know why he was there and. Um, and it was so interesting because he, he turned out to, um, there was this courtyard and he um, he would lay on this platform all day long. He had this little Burmese radio. He would play pop Burmese music and then he would be reading what looked like spy novels in, in Burmese. And so he turned out to be the nicest guy. And um, he, he at first I was worried maybe he's from intelligence or something, which is why I wasn't sure I was going to like him, but I don't think he was. Um, Unless he had a really great cover. Um, but after a while, I'd, I'd walk by and he'd just give me the thumbs up. You know, he'd just go like this. And, um, and then after a while, he moved into one of the little cooties, the little huts, and uh, just took a nap most of the day. He probably thought, this is such a great gig, you know. <laughs> and then at one point, one of um, my fellow teacher, Greg, bought him a Coca-Cola. And a Coca-Cola costs about three days' wages for an average Burmese person. They're very, very expensive. You know, they're considered quite, quite an amazing treat. You know, so it was so to me just this whole process of like being prepared not to like this policeman, 
And then the friendship we developed with him, um, it was it was meta, it was love, it was that not seeing him as separate, making him separate, um, but including him, inclus- that practice of total inclusivity. And it was a great teaching for me. In fact, I hope he's there next year. <laughs> we never spoke a word because, you know, we just didn't. I spoke a little Burmese. I don't think he spoke any English, but uh, I better hurry if we're going to have any time for questions. They're not hurry, but like, start wrapping it up here. <laughs> so this kind of love I'm talking about is um, meant to be very durable and very strong. It's not. Um, a light sentimentality that we're talking about at all. Um, I have a student who was um, diagnosed um, about a year ago with Parkinson's disease. And um, she had practiced before, and thank God, because she was not using it um, uh, very much. That's That's one thing great about practicing, right, is that it does prepare us for these sudden changes that we don't expect in our lives. And she's such an inspiration to me because she said, I want to live this experience. That was the attitude that she was going into it with, that attitude of openness, right? She said, Parkinson's is my meditation now. So um, inclusive. So love transforms judgment and rejection to interest and kindness and compassion. And, um, and, you know, I've continued to have interviews with her over the year, and she's truly um, interested in and connected with her experience. Such an inspiration. True love um, isn't cheap. It has a price. And the price is um, the openness to the full catastrophe of what it means um, to live all of it, the 10,000 joys, the 10,000 sorrows. But it's durable. It's durable because it, we can do that. We can connect in that way. In fact, the whole spiritual path isn't, isn't cheap. Uh, there's a price that we pay for it. And it's the giving up of our illusions. It's the courage that we need to um, face life as it is in this difficult world. But it's worth it. It's worth it. The price is worth it. I can't say there aren't times when I wonder if it's barely worth it. (laughs) But in my better times, I know it's obviously completely and totally worth it. Because... Um, what we get with this ability to connect with life as it is, with equanimity, with kindness, um, is, the, is the priceless treasure of actually living our lives and living with increased freedom. So, as we practice, um, we're less and less protected by the armoring of grasping, aversion, and delusion 
am more and more protected by the strength of equanimity and love, leaving our hearts open to connect with this world. The practice of openness, back to Trungpa Rinpoche at the beginning, the practice of complete openness and turning towards everything. And here's the place we can rest in this world of change. Let's sit for a couple minutes and then we can um, have a discussion. Thank you for your attention to the Dhamma. So we have a little time if you have questions or comments, concerns. helped me understand that so much um, because this is how it happens for a lot of people but yeah definitely so so when the openness is ahead of the equanimity there's a lot of rawness and vulnerability that feeling of um, it's really not so pleasant it's hard right and then at, with time often the equanimity catches up and then when they're in balance the kind of openness and the equanimity then 
we feel steady and stable and protected and, and it's nice, right? And then um, what usually happens is then we then we open again. It's like it just keeps going. We get it goes through these um this, these kinds of changes, and often we get more used to it over time. But but what makes the openness bearable is love. You know, we it's like we can't do it without love, and so it's like to keep strengthening the love so that. Um, that we can be there and then the equanimity can catch up. Does that make sense? Yeah. So if you can't do a retreat, you know, maybe do do metta practice um, or just listen to talks on metta or um, just be kind to yourself. That's a form of metta too. And the, and the being kind to ourselves can also be a kind of protection when it's really raw. It's like, what can we do to kind of soothe this poor body, heart, and mind that, you know, is in the midst of this, the, it's the vulnerability of living in this world. Yeah. I did it during yeah I did it during the three month course that I'm at so I did a couple months now they have like two six week periods but back then so I did two months and um, basically it's just meant to meditation. Some people might not know. Loving kindness. Do you, oh, so loving kindness or metta, loving kindness meditation is a meditation that's meant to cultivate um, the kind heart. Yeah. And uh, so what you do traditionally, the way I did it is you do you repeat a lot of phrases for yourself. You wish yourself well. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. May I be strong. And then you wish other people well. So you start with easy people like your easiest person who's been kindest to you in your life and then your family and friends and, and then you go to difficult people and then you um, go out to groups of people and then all beings basically in the end. And in the end it would take me about two and a half hours to go through just one sequence because you'd be doing the four phrases um, for yourself and then for all these categories and then in ten directions and it would just take a while but it was great it was blissful it was beautiful I mean um, but that what, what's fascinating is it makes the heart strong right? so the last four days of that retreat um, I got hit with incredible suffering there, there was just stuff that I needed to deal with from my past and um, and it was the metta made me strong enough to open to it. And so actually I had to suffer some more <laughs> before things started to actually get better. But it was like the metta really made my heart strong enough that I could do that. And I couldn't have done it without the metta. So it's a good quality to develop. Where, where we tend to be in this country, um, Kind of wisdom junkies, as I put it. You know, we just we keep we we go so much for the wisdom practice, and 
we forget sometimes that the love and the compassion, which is like the Buddha said, there's two wings. There's wisdom and compassion. We need both. And we, we forget that other side so much. Um, but to me, it's indispensable. You can't just do it on, on wisdom. You need both. Yeah. When you're experiencing um, this great suffering, which I think we all relate to, um, during that time, especially like you know, something really hard, you, how would you describe the love side of that? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I, because you know these things are just so strong, and the notion of any sort of love feeling or any sort of openness, yeah. especially during that, is really really hard. But yet. An element of that that needs to be there. So mm-hmm. here's to see how we move mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, For me, the love, it tends, when it's intense dukkha or suffering, the love is it's actually like the softening of the edges. It's, how, it, it's more like compassion than it's more like care. Yeah, so, the, so love oriented towards suffering is compassion. And so. Um, I mean, sometimes it's like consciously, for me, consciously calling forth the quality of caring about myself or that experience as it's happening. And then I, when, I, when, it, when it takes, and it doesn't always take, right? You can call it forth, it doesn't always happen. But you can climb the mind that way. And when it takes, what happens is I feel the edges of the suffering soften and the heart open. And so it's like the, we're caring about that pain. Um, yeah, so it's like you can, we all have that capacity in our heart to care, right? So it's like calling it forth, and, and then when it does connect, when you really start to feel that care, notice what that's like, you know? So you acclimate, it's like you acclimate the heart to, to start moving that way. What we're can deeply conditioned, how we're deeply conditioned is something hard is happening, so maybe there's a lot of anger or fear or something. And the conditioning is to turn away from it. And it's like we, it's like we exile that part of life or ourselves when we're having that experience. Um, so we can also notice that conditioning. Notice, the, like this is another way that's worked for me, so noticing the hardness of heart that turns against my experience. And when I notice that, it's like, whoa, that's not very nice. <laughs> you know. And then when I see that that's not very nice, sometimes it calls forth the compassion to care. So we can explore, so if there's fear, we can explore what fear is like, and then we can notice, is there acceptance or is there aversion? And then if there's aversion trying to get rid of it, we can just incline, call forth the care. It's all an exploration. It's like almost like we have to work it out for ourselves, but those are maybe some tips that can help a little bit. That's why it takes so much courage to practice because we're actually sitting there working it out. And while we're trying to work it out, it's going to, you know, sometimes we're going to have a lot of aversion or be in something really intense and it's going to be painful. But if we don't try to work it out, then we're, you know, we're going to still be like that and we're going to be like that more, right? So we just sit and it's like we we see what, what visitors come and then we work out, like, how can I relate to what's happening in a way that's kind? 
And the kindness then often can bring the equanimity. Um, it depends sometimes on people's life, how much time they have, um, but it also depends on what works best for you. So some people, like for example, um, perhaps if there's lots of anxiety, 10 minutes might be better than 45. You know, it's it's like what I tell people to do is if you can, what you can do is experiment. So sit for five minutes and see what that effect is on your day. Sit for ten, what's the effect on your day? Sit for a half hour, what's the effect on your day? And and so to starting to see for yourself what is the best amount or what how it helps your day. Now as far as like, you know, the, usually people need to take, I would say, at least a six-month chunk for this investigation. You know, we kind of live in the instant society, right? So we think maybe, okay, I'll try this for a week. Um, that's actually usually not enough time to actually really make a clear assessment. For some people it might be, but for a lot of people it's not. So I think you need to take a good chunk of time if, you know, to see what the effects are. But it's different for different people what's helpful. Um, so I hate to prescribe any <coughs> thing. Um, and then there's also a lot of ways that you can practice mindfulness that um, are more about like really including it in your day. And um, that can be really helpful too. So there's, like, I like to exercise. Um, I exercise most days, and um, it's it's really like a mindfulness period for me. So I like to exercise outside, ride my bike, go for a walk, whatever. And I really practice connecting with my environment when I do that. So that's for me a practice period, right? Um, and then, you know, take that on, wash the dishes, to so wash the dishes. You know, you can do anything um, with the intention to be present. And so for many people, that is a really great support or may even be more important than sitting. So it's really individual. Um, and sometimes it's helpful when you're exploring that. If, if there is, I don't know if teachers here do interviews or meetings, but if there's anybody you can meet with and talk about, sometimes that's helpful too. If there's a class that gives structure, that can be helpful. You know, exploring it with others who are trying to figure out that too. Hope that's helpful. It's an interesting, I mean, it's a hard question because there's this whole thing of discipline, right? And partly I think you're asking about discipline. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so discipline, it's a very important quality. 
And what's good to look at is like what's the energy behind the discipline. So if the energy is um, I'm going to be a new and improved um, version of myself, <laughs> you know, like if the, if, the, if the energy behind the discipline is aggressive towards ourselves, that's, that's something to kind of check out. But if the, um, if the energy is kindness, discipline is like they work, they can be great together. Kindness and discipline can really, sometimes we have to call for discipline, right? Because it's not there. <laughs> like, call it forth. Um, so there's a place with that, but, make, but check that the discipline is kind. You're welcome. Um, I thought you could ask this question to <coughs> any person that's been on Earth for a little while or anyone that's been through um, a significant amount of trauma or suffering. Um, but I'm just wondering, what does it feel like now? What are some of the differences in the way you set the intention, in the way that you practice, in the way that you love or bring love to yourself? Or other people depending on the situation compared to um, who were earlier in your practice. Uh, uh. Um, and you mentioned share will, which I think kind of resonate with. Share. Um, the, questions, the, the kind of moving away from willing yourself or something, uh-huh. or willing yourself to develop yeah. specific quality. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think when I started practice, I saw myself as a fixer-upper, <laughs> you know, I really felt like um, I was um, in some way fundamentally flawed and that I had to fix that. And, um, you know, the, the sl- a slow transition to um, uh, to really loving myself as I am. At the same time as recognizing I have work to do, because I do, but not from this place of feeling like there's something fundamentally wrong with me. You know, that I think has healed. I wouldn't say it's gone, but it's, you know, that's a huge shift. Um, Before I started practice, I was quite uptight. <laughs> I had a lot of protection. <laughs> I needed it. Um, um, so I would say that, you know, learning just a kind of relaxation um, as far as meeting the world. I would say that um, before I started practice, I didn't really, kindness wasn't actually towards others now, which was the other half of your question. It wasn't actually something that I thought about or even particularly valued. And now I, you know, it's one of the, it's how I try to live. I can't say I'm always successful, but um, it's one of my deepest wishes is to be kind. Um, so there's some movement there too, and um, I work at it. <laughs> it's. It's not always easy. <laughs> yeah. Is that helpful? Yeah. Okay. Did I miss anything? Uh, I think so. Okay.
fun. Just loving. Oh, okay. practice I was blessed with a lot of determination and the energy behind it wasn't always um, the motivation was mixed at times but the determination uh, I did use it a lot and so pretty much um, it, it's different now the determination has a different quality now but it was definitely helpful <laughs> and so when I would do retreats I just had a strong determination that I was just going to do it and that doubts and, and um, questioning and fatigue and all of that was just part of the process and you just go through it so um, it's interesting because there, I don't remember it being so easy but um, I don't ever remember questioning not just doing it <laughs> and uh, that's helpful sometimes when you're on retreat it's just it's just like it's like you know there's times you're going to hate it there's times you're going to think it's a waste of time there's times you're going to be tired you're not going to want to do it you're going to be averse there's going to be ups there's going to be downs and that you do enough retreats and you begin to accept that that's just part of the process of a retreat and you don't get so flipped out about it and so by then I had done you know a number of retreats and I was more I was kind of used to that yeah does that answer your question yeah yeah. Uh, uh, you just reminded me that this one personal story. Uh, when I was growing up as a kid, uh, math was very aversive and a subject for me. And I had, had this whole string of teachers who were kind of stern and mocked you and this and that. And it was always there. And uh, finally, uh, when I was probably like 12, years old, my parents they, uh, hired a math teacher who seemed to be like the polar opposite of that. Mm. And uh, for the first time, like when I was kind of hesitating and blundering and all the kind of like thing, for the first time, someone told me, you're doing okay, you're fine. And that was really like, hopefully, kind of was like, after that whole experience there was love it sounds like and that's what yeah melted a lot okay thank you Yeah. 
I think that's the way it is for everybody. I don't know if that helps you to know that, but um, <laughs> it's it's really the power of delusion is so strong in the human mind, and I mean this delusion in the Buddhist sense of the word again. Um, that yeah, we we see something, and then the next day the ha- old habits are really strong, right? Um, and they come back. Again, this is a case where I think if we can have compassion for ourselves, it can be really helpful. So that's one reason why I said I think um, this happens to everybody. Because first of all, if we understand this happens to everybody, that can draw forth compassion. If we think, oh, this is my personal failing that I saw this and now I can't live it, um, then we tend to be harsh, right? So it's like... um, I mean, this is part of this is part of the truth of change, and part of how hard it is to be a human in this world is just what you said. It's like we see something and it's gone. And if we can care about that, it helps a lot. If we can call in the compassion or the care, it helps a lot. And if we keep going, we we remember again and again and the remembering gets stronger. It's like an old habit, right? If you have an old habit, you're trying to break it, like you chew your fingernails, for example, you know? It's like over time you get stronger and stronger in the new habit, and the old one gets weaker and weaker, but it doesn't happen like that. Um, So as much as possible, if you can remember to care for yourself when that happens, it, it takes the edge off a little bit. And if you can care for yourself, that might even be enough in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we do live an amazing earth. And I, I hear your concern about global warming and looking at these things. And how do you major equanimity practices that I work with a lot because I care a lot about what happens to this planet. (laughs) Um, It's interesting because the rage, there can be two components of it. And one component is, can be a righteous, a, a right, no, that's the wrong word. One component of that rage can be clear seeing that you see how messed up it is, right? And that there's a lot of messed up things going on, right? And then part of the rage can be um, the heart protecting itself from the truth of the way it is. And so it's interesting. So for me, it's like the rage, the part that sees how messed up it is and that things aren't right, that can be a call to some action. And so there's some wisdom there, right? That maybe something needs. And so then that we all have, we can only choose, we can only do so much, 
right? That's part of the limitation of being human, so there's that equanimity there where we can only do so much. But I found that if we do something, it's really helpful. And so we do our little part. Like for me, partly why I teach meditation is so that more and more people can be connected enough to themselves and to this earth that they will care what happens to it. Because we live in a very disconnected society. So partly my work as a, as a Dharma teacher is environmental activism. <laughs> you know? So I think about it that way sometimes because that helps because I'm doing something. And then the rage because I can't stand how it is. The equanimity practice, and, and I only take this in small chunks because it's too huge to do much more. Like I said, I read a few pages. I read. I would read a few pages of that book, put it aside, and be like, "Okay, how large can my heart get? Can it get large enough that it can hold this truth?" And wow, that's an ongoing work. That's ongoing, you know. But. Um, it's heartbreaking. Can my heart be large enough to hold the heartbreak of it? You know, and, and, and then that calls, then to do that, I have to be kind. I have to call kindness to myself because otherwise it's not bearable. You know? It's, it's, um, it's an important question because if we just keep denying what's happening, we're, we're going to be in more and more trouble, right? Um, but but also, I let myself be deluded at times because, <laughs> hey, I'm not strong enough. I'm not strong enough to open all the time to how intense it, the, the environmental disaster of this earth is. I can't do it. You know, so sometimes I just face out. But when I can, then I, I see how much my heart can hold. Yeah. Any last questions for Rebecca? Right to the anger too, I think. No? Yeah. 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 Um, the truth of the matter is that, like, um, 
when I'm listening to, like I'll listen to NPR sometimes when I'm cooking, right? Uh, National Public, all things considered, things like that. And um, the truth of the matter is when I find myself getting very angry, I turn it off. I, I get the information I need, but I find that I don't want to feed that because I don't think it's effective in change for the most part, right? It's not effective for me to um, keep feeding hatred of a certain political party or political figures. Or um, um, That's how I solve that one, you know? I, I, I don't know if that would be the answer for you. Um, that and the fact that I try to do something to, to change things. You know, so I, I give money to certain causes and um, organizations that, um, that, that pay people to do work that I think needs to be done that I don't have time to do because I'm doing something else. Uh, so, yeah. Do you guys want a funny story? Can I read a funny sure. story to end? It was in my talk, but I didn't fit in or I lost it at one point. So. <laughs> I love this story. Okay, so and it's somewhat related, though I'm not sure if you'll get exactly why. <laughs> um, this is um, John Cage. John? Yeah, John Cage, the avant-garde composer, right? Oh, I love stories about him. So he goes, I gave a performance of my piece called Empty Words, Part 4, for the students of Troigam Trungpa at Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado. The piece goes on for two and a half hours and contains long silences of four or five minutes duration. And then out of that silence, I just say a few letters of the alphabet. <laughs> Following a score which was written through chance operations from the journal of Henry David Thoreau. Meanwhile, there are the, these very faint images of Thoreau's drawings being projected on a screen behind me, but they are very dim and hardly change at all, perhaps once every 20 minutes. I thought it was an ideal piece for a Buddhist audience. But they became absolutely furious and yelled at me and tried to get me to stop the performance. <laughs> the next morning I had a meeting with Choi Gran Trumpa and he asked me to join the faculty at Naropa. Like, why are they furious at him? You know, I'm thinking, like, like, why are they furious at him? And there's something about the unpredictability, right? It's like it doesn't fit into a secure known world. And I think that's why Trunk gave him the job. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, deal with this world. You're really easy to deal with with that guy. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Thank you, everybody, for your um, interest and engagement and commitment to your practice. Cause I do think it's what this world needs. Great, it's a great offering. It's our. It's, it may be our only hope. So, thank you. Great, and thanks once again, Rebecca, for coming. Thank you. Have a nice vacation. Thanks. <laughs>